Well, good morning, Clemson Presbyterian Church. Nice to see so many new friends that we've made over the last two weekends and meet the rest of you as well. Uh, how to start a sermon like this? Let me start with three of the best words in any language. He is risen. Amen. Whatever else I say today is not going to top that. That's the best news I have. I thought about it a lot this week, and I thought, what if I said those three words, the best I'm going to say, and then I sat down? (laughs) Kind of like Winston Churchill when he gave that famous commencement address, and he got up and he said, never give up three times, and he sat down. You would never forget it. You would remember Jesus has risen, but I, I don't have the guts to do that. So let's have a sermon. Maybe one Easter, if we're together, I'll get to do that. So I have never been through this process in my 18 or so years of being a pastor, and yet it felt oddly familiar, the process I've walked through with the PNC, because for good or bad, I realized it's kind of like looking for a girlfriend or a boyfriend in high school. Looking for a pastor, looking for a girlfriend or boyfriend, both start with someone saying to the nominating committee, the pastor, the girl, the boy, hey, you should check out so-and-so. And And then what do you do next? You check each other out online. You go scope each other out a little bit. And if that goes well, you send a message and you say, want to talk? Nothing serious, just casual, just talking. And you say, sure, and if that goes well, maybe another step. And then if that goes a little further, there's some face-to-face, some phone calls, some back and forth, some nervous energy begins to build. Of course, you don't say anything to anybody. What if it doesn't work out? So there's a little bit of sneaking around involved, maybe in both of these processes. But then finally, the last step, come home and meet the parents. So here we are. Brought home time to meet the parents. Seriously, though, of all the things going on today, this Resurrection Sunday, here's the great news, the gift that we can't miss. We get to look at God's Word together. Whatever else happens the rest of the day in the rest of the history of Clemson Prez, my life, we get the next few moments to look at God's Word together. So let's lean into that this morning. Let's hear the hope that we have at Easter this day and every day. So, one thing I've learned about Clemson Prez is you all love the truth. So this morning as we read God's Word, would you please stand in honor of God's inspired Word to us from the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these words. Thank You for this moment to come in worship and to consider and meditate on Your Word. Father, I pray that You would help me as I preach and 
help these folks as they listen, that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit to receive and hear the truth and be changed by it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, as I said, I've learned a lot about Clemson Prez the last few weeks, and one thing I've learned as I've asked is you all thankfully love the truth. You love the truth. As I've gone around and I've met with the PNC and officers and staff and members, I've often asked this question, what's one thing you would not change about this church? And the answer that came back the most was, I would not change our commitment to the truth. Because it's our commitment to the truth that tells us about grace. And we can't change either one of those. And I thought, great answer. I hope I have the same commitment as well. But, but I have to ask myself, if that's my commitment to God's truth that points me to God's grace, how do I think about that day to day? Do I hold on to that every day? Does that shape who I am? And I ask you, does it get worked out in your life day to day? If you're committed to the idea that there is a God of grace shown to us in the truth of the Bible, how do you honestly think about God on Wednesday or Thursday or any day? Does it match what you say you believe, that there's a God of truth, of unfathomable grace? as we sang just a few moments back. Does it match? Does how you say you think about God match how you really think and feel about God? Because too often, I don't think of God that way. I think of Him without saying it perhaps to myself out loud or to someone else. I sadly think of Him as a God who holds back, not a God of grace, a God who's going to give me a little less than I think I need. Too often, I see God like the cruel master in Oliver Twist. Do you remember that story? The cruel master in Oliver Twist. If you don't know, it was set in the 1830s, and um, Oliver was an orphan living in what they called a workhouse, not a great environment at all. And he and the other orphans were fed, the story goes, three meals of thin gruel a day. Is there any word that tells you what it means by how it sounds more than gruel? And not just gruel, but thin gruel. But don't worry, boys, you also get an onion twice a week, and you get a half a roll on Sundays. And the story says the bowls never wanted for washing because the boys would lick them clean to the point where they would shine, trying to get every last speck of thin gruel out. He and his friends suffered the tortures of slow starvation for three months until finally they got together and said, somebody has to do something. Somebody has to go and talk to the master because we have to have more food. Oliver, you go talk to the master. And so Oliver finishes his gruel. He goes up to the master and he utters the famous line. Do you know it? Please, sir, I want some more which seems like a reasonable request for a starving boy to make, does it not? But the master, the story says, a fat and healthy man, says, what? And makes him repeat it, please, sir, I want some more. And so the master, instead of giving him more, takes his ladle, hits Oliver upside the head, grabs him, and yells for the boss. He's now in trouble. Oliver stuck his neck out, asked for more, and got public shame in a swift no. And maybe you think if you ask God for more, he'll treat you that way. 
Because maybe you think you haven't earned any better. Maybe you think you've earned that kind of answer from God. That's what you deserve. Or maybe you've been through the fire for so long and you have asked God for more and it seems to just keep coming, the fire and the trial, that you think this must be how God is. But Paul, in these verses we read this morning, has a very different conception of God. These verses end the first section of this letter that he wrote to the Ephesians. And he ends it with this outburst of praise, this doxology for God's extravagant, lavish goodness and grace. Paul did not see God like the master in Oliver Twist and like I so often see God, and maybe you see him that way too. Paul saw him as a lavish God who gives more when we ask for it. What might change for you and for me if we really saw God that way? What might we ask for? We would ask for big things. We would ask God for more and more and more of His grace and His goodness. But we would ask for it boldly and humbly, I think these verses tell us. So let's look at three points this morning. First, we're going to look at God's resurrection power, and therefore ask boldly, and thirdly, ask humbly. So first, let's look at God's resurrection power, and go back with me to verse 20 if you've got your Bible there with you. Paul there says, God can do abundantly more according to the power at work within you. According to the power at work within you. And I think Paul, when he says power here, he specifically means resurrection power. And why do I think that? Because, for instance, back in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays this for the Ephesians, that they might know the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. He prays they would know power, power like when God worked and rose Jesus from the dead. Often these words of power and working, when Paul uses them here in Ephesians and in other letters, he's specifically referring to the resurrection power that God worked when He rose Jesus from the dead. God's power, His resurrection power, is at work within you. And when you read the New Testament, it is assumed throughout in the Gospels and the letters that Jesus Christ's physical bodily resurrection is an historical fact. That's why Paul, in another place, when he writes to the first Corinthians, can say, Jesus, yes, he appeared to me. Yes, he appeared to the apostles. But this isn't some secret conspiracy by the few because he also appeared after his resurrection, Paul says, to 500 people at one time. Do you know what you do or you don't do if you're trying to launch a conspiracy? You don't say, go fact check it with 500 people. Paul says, go and check it out. It's true. There's witnesses all over the place. It was an easily verifiable claim. And the church never from the very get-go had any other statement but Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead, an historical fact. I have this in my notes, but again, we sang it. The heart that laid still for three days pumped again. The blood began to move through his veins. His lungs expanded, taking in air, and he opened his eyes, and the dead lived. Amen. But Paul's saying this is not just an historical fact. That would be good enough. 
He's saying this is supposed to be a personal fact as well. The power at work within you. Resurrection power at work within you. A personal, transformational fact. How does an historical fact of a man rising from the dead become a personal, transformational fact for us? Well, it starts with the bad news. It starts with the fact that the Bible tells us, and I think it's right, that we're guilty. What are we guilty of? We're guilty of not loving well, to put it at its most simple. You and I are guilty of not loving our families well, are we not? We are guilty of not loving our neighbors well, our friends well, our neighbors, those in authority over us. We are guilty of not loving God well, and we get self-righteous when others don't love well. This is what the Bible says, we're guilty, but it says that's bad news, but it gets worse. Sorry. We're guilty for a reason. We don't love well for a reason. We don't love well because the Bible says we're born spiritually dead. It says that in the same book back in chapter 2, verse 1. What does it mean to be born spiritually dead even while you're physically alive? It means that you and I are born knowing how to sin. Sometimes our kids and sometimes we as adults learn how to sin by having a bad example. But you know what? We didn't need that bad example. We already knew. We're born knowing how to sin because we're born spiritually dead. It also means that we're born wanting to sin. We have spiritual death in us, even while physically alive, so we know how to, and we are born wanting to sin. And for me, I don't know about you, nothing else makes sense of the brokenness and evil that we continually see around us in the present, in the past, and will see in the future than understanding that humankind is born spiritually dead. There's a quote that sums it up well by a man named Arthur Leff, who was a law professor in the last century. He says this, listen to this. Looking around the world, it appears that if all men are brothers, the ruling model is Cain and Abel. And he says, neither reason, nor love, nor even terror seems to have worked to make us good. And then he says these last words that are the worst. He says, and worse than that, there is no reason why anything should. I mean, is the track record not in? Is the vote not in on humankind? Is there anything that's going to make us good? We've tried it all throughout history. If it was just guilt, we could try education, or we could just try wealth, or we could just try pulling the right levers, but nothing works to make us good. There's no reason, he says. But Easter says there's a reason. Easter says, Jesus' resurrection says there's something that can help us. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, God says He makes us alive together with Christ. We're born dead, but in Christ we are made alive together with Him. What does that mean? It means the Christian, through nothing but faith alone, he or she does not have to earn it, is united to Jesus in His death and in His resurrection. Now, that can be hard to get our heads around. What does it mean to be united to Jesus in His death and in His resurrection? It means that when you are trusting Christ, when you place your faith in Him, when Jesus died, you died. So that when Jesus died in the place for your guilt, for not loving well, that counts as your death. You don't have to pay that penalty anymore because you're united to Christ in His death. His death was your death. But it also means that you're united with Jesus in His resurrection through nothing but faith so that when He lived, you live. You are made alive together with Him. And that is hope that something can make us good, not perfectly in this life. 
We know that. But something can begin to change us when we are made alive together with Him in His death, united to His death, and united to His resurrection. And if we're united to Him in His resurrection, that means, yes, one day those who are dead, who have died in Christ, will rise again, and they will have an actual physical body. They are in God's presence right now. When Jesus returns, they will be resurrected. It means that you, if you die, will be physically resurrected if you are a Christian. It also means that you are now spiritually alive also. You are no longer in Christ spiritually dead. You are made alive together with Him. So when we worship God and celebrate for His physical resurrection, we're also celebrating the fact that that's our resurrection too. We have been rescued from death physically and spiritually, made alive together with Him. He did not only, when He breathed that first breath, put His death to death, He put your death to death. He put my death to death, spiritually and physically. That's, believe it or not, the power at work within us. Resurrection power is at work within us, not just an historical fact, but a personal fact through faith. That's why Paul can say also in verse 20 at the very start of it, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine according to the power at work within us. He can do more than we ask or imagine because He already has done more than we already can ask or imagine. In rising from the dead and uniting us with Him, that is more than we can ask or imagine, abundantly more so, which is a good word to translate that Greek word. But I might have gone with something more for how it means in Greek. I might have gone with infinitely more. You can't measure what God can do, infinitely more. As Ron said, we have a four-year-old named J.B., He likes to try out big words, and infinite is one of his favorite words right now. He doesn't just want a lot of waffles. He wants infinite waffles. He doesn't just want a small amount of something. He wants infinite. He's trying to say, more than I can count, more than I can measure. And that's what Paul says God's power is like and His grace. It's infinite. You can't measure it, and it's proven at the resurrection. We already learned in Ephesians, if you go back and read it, He's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. He lavished grace and forgiveness on us. He loved us and chose us for no reason in and of ourselves, but especially this Sunday, and of course every day and every Sunday, we remember Jesus Christ also did infinitely more than we can imagine by uniting us with Him in His death and His resurrection. And that means everything. It means so many things. But today from this passage, I just want to mention too, like we said, to ask boldly and to ask humbly. If that power is at work within us, then ask boldly and ask humbly. Because to ask boldly, I think Paul's inviting the Ephesians, and now you and I as well, to pray big things to a God who has done big things. Pray big things to a God who has done big things. It's the logic all over the place in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, one of my favorite verses, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave us up for us all, gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Doesn't that sound kind of like Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21? More than you can ask or imagine. Give us all things. If He gave us Jesus, if He's done great things, He will do great things. He's not going to start being a miser now. 
He's not going to give you the most precious, wonderful gift there is, His own Son, Jesus Christ, and then be a cheapskate. That's not how God is going to work. We make big asks according to His infinite grace and power. So, let's just apply this in a few ways before we go to our third point. Ask boldly for God to be at work in you. Ask boldly for God to be at work in you, within you. And isn't that the point of the power at work within us? So, is there something you need to stop but you feel like you can't? Is there something you need to stop but feel like you can't? Maybe it's something to do with your speech. You know you need to stop talking badly about so-and-so behind their back, but you feel like you can't. Is there something you need to stop when it comes to your speech or when it comes to your resentment or your bitterness, something internal? Or is there something you need to start but feel like you can't? Maybe that's moving towards a neighbor or a coworker with a physical or spiritual need in love. Is there something you need to stop or something you need to start? Ask God boldly to be at work in you. Since He's brought you new life, there's power to live a new life. And ask Him boldly to be at work in you and through you. In you and through you. Are there those in your life that are hard to love? Yes. And you might be that person for someone else. Are there those in your life that are in great need of love? Ask God to help you start, to be at work through you, loving those that are hard to love and in great need of love. Ask Him for big things to be at work through you, but these words are plural. It's not just about you and Jesus here. Now, to Him be glory in the church, in us. So, ask Him to be at work in big ways in the church. Ask Him to be at work in big ways in this church. God has and is doing great things at Clemson Prez, but we always need and we want and ask for more. And so pray that in this church, God would more and more become captivating to you because of His glory and because of His grace, that His grace would be enough to ignite your excitement, to continue helping you serve Him and love each other more. Pray that for the larger church, the church in the region, around the country, around the world. Pray for Him in big ways to be at work in the church but also through this church, ask Him for big things. That those who live around you would know that they are loved by someone from Clemson Presbyterian. That those that God places in your life would know through the church what's going on about the gospel and about the good news. Pray for conversions. Pray for discipleship. Pray for missionaries. Pray for you to be a blessing in all walks of life through this church. Be at work in you and through you and in the church and through the church. What big thing is God asking you to pray for in one of those areas or all of those areas? What big thing is God asking you to ask Him boldly for a big thing? What might He do if He's done infinitely more? He can and will do infinitely more. We have to ask boldly. But then thirdly, we also have to ask humbly. We have to ask humbly. Because for me, as I imagine those things that God might do that I might ask Him boldly for, I rarely imagine anything that has to do with my suffering. Do you imagine things as you ask Him for something bold that might involve your suffering? I imagine things that will take myself and the churches I pray for from glory to glory and from ease to ease. 
great things for us all. But that's not the way God in his wisdom works. When you ask God boldly to work in a big way in those areas, be prepared for him to answer in his ways. And those ways might involve our suffering, even as his work in Jesus involved Jesus' suffering, which led then to the resurrection. Sometimes we pray these big things and things get worse. Sometimes we ask him boldly to work in us and in our churches and through us and through our churches and things don't get better. We struggle more. We doubt more. We grieve more. We experience pain and loss. And sometimes our churches suffer. There's opposition from within and from without. And it doesn't look like God's doing infinitely more but abundantly less. And we scratch our heads and say, wait, what happened to the more? I asked. You told me to. And things aren't going the way I thought. But remember verse 21, now to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And I love how Paul keeps those two things so close together, the church and Christ Jesus. Because as they're connected, Paul sees the story of Jesus going to be lived out in his church. He finishes this outburst of praise with glory in both places. And the way Jesus got glory was the resurrection that we've been talking about. But it followed the pain of the crucifixion. And the glory of the resurrection was greater because of the crucifixion, right? And so that's the same story that God works out in our individual lives and in the lives of the church, local and large as well. The infinitely more that we ask for often is answered in God's own ways. Sometimes the way he answers it is in our own loss or shame. But yet, there will be resurrection. There already has been for you personally. You're spiritually alive right now, and there will be for you individually and for the church at large also. God will get glory in and through the church. And in his love and wisdom, that might take us through something hard, but it will be more beautiful in the end for it. Because God will always, always, always be the hero of your story. He will not share that character role with you in your story. He will work out your story in a way where we get to say what is good and right. And Jesus, you are the hero of my story. I wanted to be the hero of my story. I wanted to work out everything perfectly where everyone looked at me and said, great job, Brian. And aren't you the same way? But Jesus says, no, what's glory and what's good is taking you through crucifixion to get to the resurrection of me being the hero. And it's true for our church's stories as well. Jesus will be the hero of our church's story. Sometimes we want someone else to be the hero of the church's stories. Maybe yourself, maybe the leadership, maybe somebody else, but it will be Jesus who's the hero. certainly won't be the next senior pastor, me or anybody else, I can tell you that. Jesus will be the hero of the church's story. Sometimes our church's roads to glory include things that don't look like glory but it works out so much better in the end. And that's so freeing because we don't have to be the pressure or we don't have to have the pressure to be the hero, do we? That's a lot of pressure. We give it over to someone else and we realize he's the only one we have to perform for. I heard a story, I read a story a few years back that helped me think about these things. It was, about a, it, it, <clears throat> it was a story about a piano player who gave a concert at Carnegie Hall. Now, if you're into music, you probably know Carnegie Hall, even if you aren't into music, you've heard of Carnegie Hall. It is one of the most famous venues in the world. If you were asked to give a concert there, you are at the top of your game. So this piano player goes and he gives a concert at Carnegie Hall. 
And it gets better because at the end, he is given a standing ovation. He's given an encore. Can you imagine? But he won't come back out because one man was still sitting. His audience of one was his teacher. And his teacher said, you've got more. He was playing for an audience of one. And I think that's true. It can be freeing. We know we only have to perform for one, not for everybody else. But here's where I'd like to change that metaphor just a little. Because God never sits with his arms crossed, disappointed in us, does he? Not if grace is real. God always delights in us. And if you think with me about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it's a verse you might know that says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. You are God's workmanship. Another word for that workmanship is masterpiece. God is making you and me a masterpiece. If that's true, you and I aren't the piano player. God is, and we're the piece of music. And he's playing, and he is weaving a beautiful story in our lives. And sometimes it has dark themes, but those dark themes are always redeemed. They're always redeemed. The resurrection always comes, and he always gets glory in you and in the church. There will be glory in the church. One of my favorite lines from Rich Mullins, a singer probably many of you know, he says, staying on this theme of art and masterpiece, If I were a painter, I do not know which I'd paint. The calling of the ancient stars are the assembly of the saints. Imagine all the beauty when God created the stars that will pale in comparison to the glory He's creating in His church. And though right now she is weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus is writing a story that mirrors His. He's uniting us to Him in His death and resurrection. He's done great things, so we ask Him to do big things boldly, and humbly. Let me pray. Father, you alone could write such a beautiful story for broken, guilty, dead sinners like us. Father, I pray that you would capture our hearts and imagination with your incredible grace, with the infinite things you have done and will do for us in Jesus, and that would motivate us, we pray, like we've said, to ask boldly and humbly for you to do big things. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.